Hello and welcome to the Brief Premium Podcast. I'm Frances Gibb, Legal Editor of The Times, and with me is Jonathan Ames, the co-editor of The Brief. Joining us later will be Roger Smith, the former Director of Justice, and Ian Miller, a regulatory partner from the London law firm Kingsley Napley, who will discuss the implications of the recent Lee Day Iraq War Claims Disciplinary Tribunal hearing. But first, we start this week with a minority Conservative government on tenderhooks over whether the Prime Minister will win enough support in the House of Commons to pass last week's Queen's speech. Theresa May has been wooing the Ulster Democratic Party, but the Irish have been playing hard to get. Spicing up the negotiations between Westminster and Belfast is an announced judicial review challenge that claims that the proposed confidence and supply deal between the Tories and the DUP would breach the Good Friday peace agreement. For lawyers, the Queen's speech was more notable for what it lacked. The PM had to drop her cherished plans to merge the serious fraud office with the National Crime Agency. With no overall majority in the House, the votes would not be there for such a controversial move. But proposals for an ambitious programme of court modernisation survived the post-general election fallout. However, they too are contentious. Bar leaders especially are anxious that online courts and pleas will lead to miscarriages of justice. Over the last week, lawyers' fees have been back in the spotlight. The Medical Protection Society, the outfit that insures doctors, claims that fees in clinical negligence claims are unsustainable. Staying with money, in the coming days, solicitor regulators are expected to release guidance to law firms after the Treasury published its updated money laundering and terror financing regulations on Friday. And still on the theme of filthy lucre, London's reputation as the divorce capital of the world does not stay out of the news for long. A Russian oligarch is asking the Court of Appeal to slash what he describes as an over-generous £7 million payout to his ex-wife, which was originally awarded by a Russian court and confirmed by the English High Court. And finally, single parents received some support from the High Court at the end of last week. Judges ruled that the government's contentious benefit cap is unlawful and causes real misery to no good purpose. That didn't impress ministers and the Pensions Secretary has announced an immediate appeal. Now over to Linda Jung, who is talking to Patricia Robertson QC, the counsel who defended Lee Day and the solicitors from the firm at the recent tribunal. With me is Patricia Robertson, QC of Fountain Court Chambers. Thank you for joining us, Patricia. You're welcome. Patricia acted for the law firm Lee Day, its partners Martin Day and Sapna Malik, and also assistant solicitor Anna Crowther in the Solicitor's Disciplinary Tribunal. All four were accused in the tribunal of pursuing false claims by Iraqi civilians of torture and murder by British troops in Iraq. All of those claims were dismissed by the tribunal. Patricia, this was one of the longest at seven weeks and one of the most complex hearings by the tribunal. What were those complexities and what were the challenges? Well, I think the first thing to say is we have four separate clients here, the three individuals and the firm itself. The allegations, as you've indicated, some of them related to the underlying merits of nine claims, civil claims that were proposed to be brought on behalf of Iraqi civilians. Now, those claims actually themselves never got out of the starting blocks, but they became the subject of judicial review and then a five-year public inquiry. And we had to delve right into the facts of those underlying actions in order to defend the allegations that were made about the merits of the claims, and in particular about 
the effect of the inadvertent non-disclosure of one particular document. You probably read the reports about that, the OMS list. The way the case was put was that that was the sort of nail without which the kingdom was lost and that the whole course of history would have gone differently if that had been disclosed earlier. Now, in order to evaluate that, you actually had to understand how the thing had played out over a period, really very long period, some 10 years were involved in the underlying facts and get right into the guts of what had happened in the public inquiry. So that made it quite complex. There were also a whole set of quite separate allegations about the financial side of things. Basically, the referral arrangements that brought some 600 Iraqi clients to the firm and the way in which expenses had been managed on trips to various countries to interview those individuals. That was quite separate, but again, factually quite complex and covering a big period of time. So it was up there with the most complex commercial cases, really. And all the documentation, how much was involved there? Well, I think the search terms produced something like 170,000 documents, which then had to be whittled down to something more manageable. And we ended up with a trial bundle, which was, I don't know, some 50 lever arch files by the end of that. And what's your advice for other lawyers who have to defend lawyers, I suppose? Well, I mean, you're always going to get, and it's inevitable with any lawyer, the kind of buy a dog and bark yourself mentality, because no lawyer can resist arguing their own case. But if you've got clients who are sensible enough, they know that what's needed is a dialogue, really. Of course, they're going to have views. They're going to have views about the strategy as well as about the legal issues. And you have to listen to those views. But basically, you're there for your expertise. And you're there because you have an objectivity that they inevitably lack because they're too close to it. So you've got to develop a good relationship where you can argue things out. And sometimes it will be an argument. But you can actually reach an agreed landing place about how you're going to manage the litigation. And obviously, as well, it's very stressful for people who find themselves in the crosshairs of that kind of thing. So you need to have empathy, but not to the point that you cease to function in terms of the job that you've got to do yourself. So the best advice I can give you is you've got to help them find their support networks because they're going to need other support networks to get them through the experience whilst you focus on the job that you've got to do. And is there a difference between acting for solicitors and acting for barristers? I wouldn't say particularly so because, I mean, certainly in this one, I was acting for people who were litigators and so one has a tremendous amount of fellow feeling for the situation in which they found themselves. Each of us has been in a situation where you have a case that looked good at the start and actually comes apart in your hands. So we understand that and whether you're a barrister or a solicitor, I think you'd feel about that quite the same way. Obviously, there are other cases where it might involve, say, client money, and that's something that barristers are not involved with at all and so that's not something we have the same perhaps instinctive understanding of. One of the issues that's risen in the last six, seven months is about the burden of proof yeah. in front of the tribunal and also that concerns barristers and the adjudication yeah. process. No, it is. I mean, I was involved some years ago in a test case that was intended to test this point out, but then the divisional court and their wisdom decided it wasn't necessary to decide the particular point. So it's still unresolved in terms of the legal position in the SDT. The case law remains that it's the criminal standard. As you know, the BSB are consulting on changing that at the moment. Board, yeah. yeah, And uh, I think that's it's quite a complex debate. I think what I would say as a word of caution on it is, in my experience, relatively few regulatory cases really turn on a big factual dispute where the burden of proof will be decisive about the way that the case is decided. A lot of the time, it's much more subtle than that. To give an example, in in the Lee Day matter, a lot of it was about the interpretation of some pretty technical referral rules. And you're either right or wrong about the construction of the rule. Standard of proof doesn't come into that as such. So I think one needs to be a bit wary of thinking that it's going to be a complete game changer if the standard of proof changes. Rather more important, I would have thought, 
are issues around the expertise of the tribunals who determine these cases and their independence, I think both of which are tremendously important. It's very important that you have people who actually understand how to do the job involved in adjudicating on whether or not lawyers have fallen short. And it's very important as well that the tribunals who decide these things are wholly independent of the state because obviously, and we had it here, you have scenarios where you're basically asking questions about the conduct of lawyers who have been acting against the state. And for everybody to have confidence in the outcome, it's necessary to have complete confidence that the process itself is independent, as it indeed is. How do you get away from all these lawyers, Patricia? (laughs) Well, my personal approach to stress busting is obsessive gardening, but also visiting gardens. After court, we would typically come back from the SDT and do a couple of laps of inner temple garden to unwind and also to think through the next phase of the day. It's tremendously refreshing to do that. And then you can go back and kind of tackle the things you have to do in the evening. And I get hands on with, you know, weeding and such like in my own garden. I find that's a very good space in which to think things through. Thank you, Patricia. Over to you, Jonathan. Thank you, Linda. I'm here with Roger Smith, former director of the group Justice and a commentator on human rights issues, and Ian Miller, a partner at the London law firm Kingsley Napley, who specialises in professional regulation matters. And we're here to discuss one of the most high-profile, if not the highest-profile, case to come before the Solicitor's Disciplinary Tribunal ever. It certainly was the most expensive and longest-running case, and it involved the London law firm Lee Day Solicitors. They were in the dock involving cases they handled around the Iraq war, and the case came quickly on the heels of Phil Shiner, who was, as our listeners will remember, struck off by the tribunal earlier this year. In the end, the tribunal absolutely exonerated Lee Day. The case ran for seven weeks before the tribunal. It had absolutely acres of newspaper coverage, not least in our own, but across the tabloids as well. As the allegations were extremely serious and very um, vivid in relation to the suggestion that British troops had tortured and murdered innocent civilian Iraqis during the war, those allegations were proved to be totally unfounded and untrue. And yet uh, Lee Day, which acted for some of the claimants, found itself uh, in the dock over suggestions that it had uh, knowingly made inaccurate claims against uh, the British military. After all that, we had a tribunal case that ran for, as I say, seven weeks, cost possibly £11 million. And what did we learn from it? Well, we learned that Lee Day took a slightly chaotic approach to keeping its files, but were there any other lessons? Roger, what are, what are the lessons we've learned from this case? I think the fundamental lesson is that if you are going to take major litigation involving the state or probably a large corporate body, you need to be cleaner than clean. Uh, and you need to have no chink uh, in any attack on your armour because there will be an attack. And politicians like Sir Michael Fallon were after Phil Shiner for a previous case, Bahamusa, where he was completely exonerated. Uh, And you just have to run these things as professionally as they possibly can. Ian, the regulator, I suppose, is in a difficult position here. There's very serious claims, um, yet they throw a lot of money at this and um, come out losing. Are they open to any criticism? Inevitably, they are. A lot of money was spent in a case that, that ultimately was unsuccessful. I think what comes out of it is is the SRA don't always win, and probably increasingly so in front of the SDT. Um, and in order to win, you need to have 
not only the facts on your side, but the allegations that demonstrate that there was actual professional misconduct. I think one of the issues in this case was there was a lot of drawing attention to things which were less than perfect, but that's not professional misconduct. You need to get to a much higher level. Why do you say the SRA is increasingly losing before the tribunal? It, it t- tends to be, certainly when I started doing cases 20 years ago, on behalf of what has become the SRA, um, the SDT was was quite sympathetic. The, the facts were relatively straightforward. Quite often they involved client money being taken by solicitors. Now the, the circumstances that the SRA are prosecuting are more complex. And certainly it appears the SDT is less willing, as it were, to explore other areas of misconduct in the same way that it's quite comfortable around client money and, and the narrow issues of, of misconduct. Well, it raises the interesting issue about whether the Law Society is actually a better prosecutor of these matters than the SRA and whether the, uh, the whole move to separate out the regulatory function actually was worth it. Why, why do you think the Law Society might have been better, Roger? You know, in terms of what it raises, did the inherent knowledge that the Law Society had of proper practice, uh, did that give it an advantage? Is the SRA too far outside? I myself wouldn't raise a question about the taking of the case, although I would like to be reassured that the SRA did not come under political pressure, particularly from Sir Michael Fallon and and others, and I think we need to see that correspondence to make sure that there was not improper conduct there. Um, The SRA took the case effectively against uh, Phil Shiner and Lee Day. Phil Shiner pleaded. They lost on a majority verdict against Lee Day. I, I think it was probably properly taken. I mean, the, the, the point around the majority verdict is an, is, is a, is an interesting and curious one. Uh, perhaps we'll come back to that in a moment. But first, if I could ask Roger, Lee Day exonerated, as we say, nonetheless, a rather painful and, and traumatic experience for them, undoubtedly, for the three, for the three lawyers uh, uh, in the frame and the firm itself. Huge tabloid and other newspaper coverage, media coverage all over their processes and, uh, and looking at, you know, their, their, them as individuals. Will that attention have a chilling effect on other firms in the human rights field taking on high-profile cases against the government or agencies of the government? It's possible, and that's the danger. But actually, if you know the Lydia people, they are up for the fight. (laughs) And uh, this is not the first time they've been subject to uh, massive attack. Uh, And they've won some and they've lost some. And I think that firms like Lee Day do a really good job in society. And I'm sure those within those firms think that too. And you just have to hope that if people are going to be tough enough to take this kind of case, they're going to be tough enough to live with the negative publicity they sometimes get. Ian, back to the point around the tribunal decision itself. It's been well publicised. It was a it was a majority decision, two to one. In a professional disciplinary tribunal environment, does that make sense? I mean, does, is there not a risk that people will still take a view that, well, there was one member of the tribunal that thought otherwise, and that colours the verdict, as it were? I think that's a definite possibility. I, I cannot recall an instance where the tribunal has had a minority decision. Um, presumably in the past there have been cases where they've not entirely disagreed on the outcome, but that has been kept within their their own internal discussions. Here, when this is released in, in August, we will get not only the majority view, but also the minority view where that tribunal member wanted to make findings against Lee Day, and that will also be made public. And 
And that doesn't quite feel right to me as as, as the way in which the, the tribunal should be proceeding. Roger, does it feel right to you? I think in classic lawyer fashion, a win is a win and a loss is a loss. And you live with the decision that, uh, that is made. Mm-hmm. I don't see any alternative. If you've got three members of a tribunal... Um, then they're deliberately an odd number, so they may be a they not keep the di- Sorry to interrupt, but could they not keep the difference among themselves? I don't think they can. I mean, if two people think you're guilty and one person thinks you're innocent, how can the person who's innocent sign up to a decision which is you're guilty, or the other way around, however it is? Uh, if there's a mi- one person, or more than one, in a minority, I don't see that they can sacrifice their integrity or the integrity of their view for a majority decision with which they fundamentally disagree. You could say the SDT should be a single person. I would be personally against that. I think it's right to have three people. If it is three people, then you run the chance of having a majority verdict. Ian, on a practical matter, uh, we've already alluded to the extremely high cost of this case. Lee Day is understood to have spent at least 7.5 million defending itself. Um, And the mechanism by which they were able to do that was um, not conventional professional negligence insurance, but uh, officers and directors insurance. Is there a lesson there for firms involved in potentially controversial areas of work? Uh, You need a top up. Well, you, you, I, I think you do. I mean, the, the, the SRA's minimum terms specifically, I think I'm right in saying, excludes disciplinary proceedings. So solicitors have not had cover through their professional indemnity policy for disciplinary proceedings. And um, directors and officers' insurance is certainly one way around it or some other specialist product because otherwise you are exposed um, for what could be huge costs when particularly doing this type of work. So... I think many firms would be wise to go back and look at their policies to see whether they do cover all that they need to cover. One other point that's uh, glaringly uh, come out of the uh, the tribunal is the um, issue around the standard of proof. Now, this is not specific to this case at all, but the prosecutors, both in, on both sides of the profession, the Solicitors Regulation Authority and the Bar Standards Board, are actively lobbying to have the standard of proof lowered from the current criminal standard to the civil. Uh, they claim that other professional bodies and other areas areas of life in uh, professional um, disciplinary proceedings operate to a civil standard. Should lawyers be different, Roger? Should lawyers maintain... I think the criminal standard is right. I mean, you are ending the profession. Had had this case been found, or any case found by the SDT of this kind of nature, the lawyers would lose their livelihood. They would have been bankrupted, no doubt, like uh, Mr. Shiner is allegedly. So uh, the consequences are enormous. They are for doctors as well, are they not? They might be, but I, I, uh, doctors can argue their corner. Uh, prosecutors the world over will argue for a lower burden of proof, no doubt. Uh, everybody argues for their particular interests, but I think that's appropriate for solicitors. And I think to have a balance of probabilities judgment on a case of this kind would have raised the bar far too low. Ian? Um, there are now only three major professions that have the criminal standard being barristers, solicitors and vets. Even the other legal regulators don't have the um, the criminal standard anymore. So I think on a public interest argument, saying that um, a solicitor could remain in practice even though the tribunal thought it was more likely than not that they'd done something because they weren't sure to the criminal standard doesn't feel like public protection in the 21st century. But having said that, I'm not sure practically it makes a huge amount of difference in individual cases, particularly since cases involving lawyers tend to be heavily documented 
and very little is effectively left to the standard or indeed burden of proof. And indeed, in practical terms, uh, the government uh, and the Ministry of Justice probably have a lot of things on their mm. plate at the moment. Is Are we talking purely academically here? Do you think there would be any sort of government time to look at reducing the standard of proof in these cases? It, it, it doesn't require primary legislation. So so the BSB are currently consulting on changing for their for, for um, the, the, the Bar Tribunal Service. The SDT could change the standard of proof by changing their rules, and, and they're probably up for review shortly anyway. So it's likely to come through that route rather than needing um, legislative time to bring about the change. Roger Smith, Ian Miller, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast here at The Brief Premium and The Times. Join us in a fortnight's time for another discussion of legal current affairs.